But I actually get, again, I'm coming from the place of the person who has done these things. I was just critiquing myself. And for this archetypical fictional person that I'm, you know, drafting, the idea of things like cultural appropriation and white people telling people of color what they should and should not think are some of the greatest sins in the world. And yet deconstruction depends on those two things to exist at all in the first place. You know, the, the Bible was not written by white people and it was not written by people in positions of power or people with any kind of wealth or affluence. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name is Ethan. And my name is Derry. And guys, thank you so much for coming back and listening again to a great episode that we're going to have. You guys can find us all over social media, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. We're on Spotify, iTunes, everywhere you find podcasts. I haven't heard iTunes in a long time. Apple yeah. Podcasts, yeah. Apple yeah, iTunes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Apple Podcasts, yeah. Mobetta. Um, but yeah, also, if you guys want to support the show, we got a Patreon. Mm-hmm. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Yeah, today we have a really cool guest. His name is Josh Porter. Um, he's an artist. He's a pastor in Washington, and he's uh, got a new book out called The Death to Deconstruction. So we're having him on today to talk about suffering in our lives, how it, how it works as being a Christian, and this deconstruction movement that's happening. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people deconstruct because of the problem of suffering at least mm. a lot of people I know, among a lot of other problems as well with Christianity that we've covered on the, the podcast. So, Josh, welcome on the show. Anything I missed that you want to plug? Oh. No, I mean, that's a great setup. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So maybe let's start with a little bit of your story. How, how do you relate to deconstruction, to suffering? I know you have a lot of really good music that, that I love personally from your band Showbread back in the day um, that really communicates that in a very raw way um, that I really appreciate. Um, but what has your story been with this whole thing that's it's very new, it's very like a fad now to deconstruct, but it's something that you have dealt with in the past a lot. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, I have all the, you know, the, the classic landmarks for a great deconstruction story. I was raised in uh, southern uh, Georgia, the deep south, in a rural area. I, I grew up going to a, um, a fundamentalist, kind of conservative, severely right-leaning southern church. Uh, and I was exposed, you know, from really the the beginnings of my church experience on to the kind of hypocrisy that that all of us experience if you hang around people not just church yeah. but uh mine was colored by you know christian nationalism and militarism and and specifically an enormous amount of racism hmm. and and then i discovered punk rock and started this band and traveled all around the world for years and years and years and Everyone I knew at that point, that's obviously hyperbolic, but it felt as if everyone I knew that had kind of risen from this uh, youth group culture Mm. in which I was raised, they were slowly, over time, on a long enough timeline, bailing out on the idea of first church, Mm. um, and then eventually um, the what we would call like the orthodox Christian tradition Mm. or the historic apostolic Christian tradition, and kind of... Um, dismantling, and the word later became deconstructing the uh, theology ideas that they were given at some point in their upbringing, and erecting in its place a new quasi-spirituality, mm. a, a patchwork spirituality where they're grabbing pieces from usually, you know, it would be, I think, generous to say that they're actually borrowing from other religions and traditions, but w- what's probably more accurate is that they're borrowing from, like, 
YouTube videos right. and podcasts and what mm-hmm. somebody said on their social media feed. And I like that. I like that quote. So I'm going to take a little <laughs> bit of Buddhism from this yeah. quote, you know, or whatever, Eastern mysticism. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and eventually I think because that kind of loose, uh, threadbare spirituality can't really sustain it. It can't build community mm-hmm. around itself mm-hmm. because there is no standard by which one lives or no idea around which people can, you know, huddle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that falls apart too, and eventually just leads to a kind of deconversion and neo agnosticism, right. where there's like, um, you know, I'm open to spirituality, but don't have any, or, or right. don't have any kind of developed spirituality to speak of. So that was happening, probably from you know the early 2000s when I first set off on the road. Uh, the the gradual process of that was beginning mm-hmm. to take place, and I was seeing it firsthand. Um, and I was getting, you know, bumping up against a lot of questions about, well, what do you, what do you believe? You're drawn to all these um, ideas that are outside of the box and, and art that are certainly outside of the box and really confrontational. Are you really going to hang on to this thing? Um, so I have all the pieces, you know, and I, like anybody, I have suffering in my story and pain in my story as well. And um so I bumped up against everything that usually derails faith <laughs> in the, you know, the kind of evangelical fairy tale. Mm. Uh, but somehow now, you know, 39 years old, uh, I haven't really changed my perspective and that I'm still drawn to outside ideas that are outside of the box and still mm. drawn to confrontational art and all those things. And still think of myself as punk rock, even though I'm a dad and a pastor now. But I am, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm more... Uh, grounded in the ancient historic Christian tradition than I have ever been. And so as I, you know, as a pastor started having conversations with um, people who are my age when I was beginning to go on that um, quote-unquote deconstruction journey or to confront deconstruction on the precipice of deconstruction, Hmm. they're asking me very sincerely, like, how did you make it? Like, you you know, they're telling me, oh, these are the things that I'm confronting and that I'm dealing with. And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. And here's what mine was like. And I got a whole lot of how in the world are you still a Christian? Hmm. So then I wrote a book about it. And that's how that came about. Nice, nice. How and, long has this book been in process? Like, when, when did you first have the idea like, oh, I should probably write on this because I can, I can, like, I think I have a, like help that can for other people. It gestated for a while because I wanted to, I comment on the deconstruction, I would call it fad. I realize that that sounds like a pejorative, but uh, I've been commenting as a pastor on the deconstruction fad in sermons and writing for a very long time. Um, And it's something that uh, both fascinates me and kind of aggravates me, and it is part of my story as well. So I set out to write about it. When I first sat down to write about it, I assumed that I was going to write something that was like intellectual and or more intellectual, and I'm going to present these ironclad arguments against the classic reasons that people deconstruct. Mm-hmm. And when I sat down to write that book, I realized that book exists yeah. several times over, and they're really good. <laughs> like I, if someone... If someone asked me for that book, I could say, oh, read this and this and this. And mm-hmm. um, so I ended up writing something that was used more of my story, which wasn't interesting to me in the beginning. I'm not like a memoir person, uh, but I am like I read so much more fiction than I read nonfiction. Mm. So I had to force myself to read a lot of uh, nonfiction to 
um, you know, prepare for this book or research for this book. And I found that, you know, at least in my own personal experience, and it's not, um, it's not extremely narrow, you know, I've, you know, traveled the world and I've been a pastor now for many years. Uh, deconstruction is intellectual degree, and there are all these kind of mind problems that derail faith, um, which is why a million of those books exist, and a lot of them are good. But in my experience, it's often more so emotional and reactive. Mm. Uh, it, it's about, I was hurt, or this thing happened to me, you know, I have religious trauma, I have church trauma, and I just don't want to do it anymore, mm. you know. I, I, we don't often word it that way. We tend to word it as if we are passive parties to an experience that we can't, can't control. So people will say, I just couldn't do it. Um, or, it you know, like, I, I just was, it happened yeah. to me. Deconstruction happened to me mm-hmm. rather than I, you know, like uh, taking like <laughs> responsibility as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like I, I have autonomy and I just don't want to do it anymore. Like mm-hmm. I, I choose not to do it anymore. Um, because, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that victim culture and outrage culture mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. But it, it is extremely emotional and volatile. And I'm not even using emotional as a pejorative. Like, mm-hmm. it's it makes sense that it's emotional. Mine was emotional. Not purely. It's intellectual as well. Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing a book that is really, I think, uh, emotional. I didn't realize that I had done it until I handed the manuscript to a few people to read. And mm-hmm. they were like, oh, man, it's like, it's pretty harrowing. Like, there's yeah. a lot of pain and there's a lot of... Uh, you know, like uh, one guy that I gave it to a close friend um, for feedback, and he's like, it honestly reminds me of the fiction you write. It's like pain, 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 and then there's, you know, redemption. And um, so that's that's probably not what you get when you sit down to read like an apologetic book about right. good reasons why these things in the Bible make sense. But I figured I might as well offer a, a different genre to an already well-rounded conversation. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. When you talk about that you went from this questioning things um, to a place of evolving to following the more traditional version of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. We work in the, the deconstruction area a ton because that's what our, our podcast is centered around. It's helping people with those questions, whether emotional that they're going through or intellectual. And at least to me, it seems like the people we talk to the most go in in these few directions. Either you completely deconvert and you go to some kind of like optimistic nihilism, like an an agnostic atheist kind of thing. And there's a a ton of podcasts out there. It's very popular right now. Or you'll go to some kind of progressive Christianity. Um, Mm -hmm. You'll you'll just affirm inerrancy, which I think people are still Christians, but a lot of people will go to just like a symbolic form of everything. And it gets very dangerous kind of on the edge out there. And you see classic examples of like Bart Ehrman, the king of agnostic atheists, did exactly that after he um, became a Bible scholar um, and then eventually became an atheist. Right. Um, or people will go and do what you've done in finding a much more traditional version of Christianity that's much more historic to cling on to. Um, so can you explain to us how you got there a little bit and what that looks like? Yeah, I think that the... You know, there's a lot of talk about good and bad deconstruction, which I, I totally understand. You know, one of the uh, first combative things that I heard when I announced the book at all, um, they're like, death to deconstruction. Like, deconstruction's a good thing. What about good deconstruction? What about healthy deconstruction? And there's a couple of reasons for it. One, um, I thought it was a cool title. You know, it sounds pretty <laughs> punk rock. Um, 
too, I think that in the in the pop culture spiritual conversation, deconstruction has become a junk drawer term that usually means yeah. to jettison one's faith yeah. in some sense or another. When we say deconstruction or when you read like an article in Christianity Today or Relevant or something, and they put deconstruction in the title of the article, we know that that means people who were Christians and are no longer Christians in any meaningful sense. Hmm. Um, so what I do in the book is argue that there's pro- it's probably just more helpful to adapt the vocabulary around the deconstruction conversation. I, hmm. you, know, you could use any number of terms. I prefer um, transformation of faith hmm. or, or spiritual formation in general. Yeah. Everyone who follows Jesus has to transform their faith over time. Everyone who sets out on this, you know, ancient way of life has to evolve their faith, evolve their practice. Um, And not only do you have to do it like you are, it's intended as part of the process of, you know, apprenticeship. When you apprentice a master, you don't just inherit a set of beliefs and then stagnate. Mm -hmm. You 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 grow in mastery, and that means changing your methodology and the ways that you think. And um, so I think that you know that's one of the misconceptions is that uh, oh they're they're the same thing they're they're not the same thing. I th- I think that you know the uh, you know analogy that I like to use is that transformation or spiritual formation is like renovating a house. It's still the same house. You stay in the house. You don't leave the house. But you can do drastic things to adapt the, you know, the livability of the house, yeah. the, you know, the layout of the house. And deconstruction is a demolition project by, by definition. I mean, mm-hmm. by the, the name itself, it means tearing it down. And, oh, if you, go, if you do build something else, it's not going to be that house anymore. It's going to be something else entirely. And I realize, you know, it's word semantics and everything, but I think that that's kind of where the conversation has gone and where the terminology has gone. So, you know, I, I agree with you guys. I think that, you know, what often happens is that deconstruction, at least, you know, light deconstruction eventually becomes um, a kind of deconversion, if not outright deconversion, because it's not a tenable way to carry out one's worldview, that half in, half out. I believe some of Christianity, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. And... Historically, there's a lot of precedents for it, when, especially when you kind of remove any of the, uh, the kind of core tenets of the Christian movement for hundreds and hundreds of years. The moment that you say something like, oh, well, you know, I think Jesus is wrong about this mm. thing, or I no longer believe that these parts of the Bible are, are true. And right. I'm not talking about nuanced, complicated conversation right, with right. lots of, you know, intelligence. And blah. I just mean like, nope, that's gone. Mm. Um, then it becomes increasingly difficult to make to hold the thing up because yeah. you know, like uh, once you say, "Oh well, you know, I think Jesus is wrong about this thing," or the Bible's wrong about this thing, that's fine. But now, what are we going off of? If right. you know, like, if Jesus is wrong about this thing, then why do we follow him at right. all? Mm-hmm. And if part of the Bible's wrong, what? Why not just? you know, drop the Bible. And once you drop the Bible, it's like, well, that's kind of where we get it all. Right. <laughs> so yeah. if we don't have that anymore, what's the point? Um, so I think that uh, outright deconversion, for me personally, has more integrity than deconstruction hmm. because it has the, you know, the wherewithal to just say, I just don't believe it. And I, it doesn't make any sense to say I believe some but not all to suit my kind of personal preferences. Mm-hmm. I might as well just say I don't believe it. I'm out, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
And there are legitimate reasons that people have. Obviously, there's very smart atheists and agnostics in the world, and there's very intelligent people from other worldviews and religions. So it's not like, oh, you're a dummy if you don't believe. I get, I, you know, it's not, it's not for everybody, and I feel fine with that. I think that um, for me, remaining in the uh, the house of orthodoxy or the countryside of orthodoxy, because it is a, a wide countryside with lots of different yeah. traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, like you said, you know, Derry, that, that they're Christians, hmm. even if, you know, we have um, differences in theology and practice that, that make our traditions unique expressions. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I've been a Protestant Christian all my life. I read regularly from Catholic theologians. Hmm. And, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm part of a non-denominational church, but I read and am influenced by Methodists and Baptists. I'm not Reformed by any stretch of the imagination, but I read from Reformed scholars. So, mm-hmm. um I'm happy to have all these people as sisters and brothers in the tradition, but I think when you when you stay, and if you evolve, meaning you're not um, r- remaining kind of complacent in your apprenticeship to Jesus, eventually, uh, that's where you end up. You either bail or you evolve to the point of like rediscovering the 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 you know the the historicity of the Christian tradition and realizing that it's bigger than you thought it yeah. was and the beauty of that and um, and that even though orthodoxy feels for a lot of especially um, the kind of evangelical crowd and the progressive crowd um, feels really stifling. To me, it's a it's a, a beautiful. Um, you know, uh, it, it defines the movement for me. It's mm. almost as if, like, who are we if we don't have a creed or a core, a code by which we believe and live? Um, so the things like the creeds and the things like the core tenets of, um, you know, the Christian tradition, the kind of things that when people come into our church and like, what do you guys believe? You know, they're often disappointed that it's so broad or disappointed that it's so specific, you know, that uh, <laughs> yeah. the Apostles' Creed and we'll read the Nicene Creed and we'll say we believe these things about God, these things about the Bible, mm-hmm. the kind of stuff that you'd find if you just clicked on doctrinal statement to your normal right. you know, yeah. church. Right. Um, I think that that's where faith leads. It leads to an, uh, a, ma- a maturing of perspective, which inevitably becomes a broadening of perspective, but it remains within orthodoxy, within the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when it comes to deconstruction, and it, like a lot of people are like pushing against like what they've grown up with, and you were talking even about how you grew up in a fundamentalist church, what do you think, and maybe there's not one answer, but like in your opinion, what is like the reason or the main thing people are like the why are people decon- deconstructing or deconverting so rampantly it seems in this culture because it seems like people all people have always had these questions about Christianity mm. the philosophical questions are not new questions yeah, that we they, don't they know how to answer Christ yeah, yeah it's like 2000 years of church history we have on our side to help process these and i love what you're saying about the countryside of mm. christianity because there's like eastern orthodoxy there's orthodoxy there's the um I forgot what the Asian Catholic, uh, yeah, us. Catholics, yeah. Protestants, so many different types of Christianity all over the world. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Protestants in Asia, it's completely different. Exactly. Than Protestants yeah. Here. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so it seems to be like, is it are people deconstructing because they they're thinking of Christianity only as what their experience of Christianity is, and they're not aware of all these different other forms? Or what do you think that is? I think it's exactly that personally, and I, I think there's actually data to back that up. We in the Western world 
Um, and it's not it's not all bad. It sounds like I'm beating up on and calling people ignorant. I'm I belong to the the Western world as well, but we tend to kind of assume our narrow perspective speaks for the world, you know. And in an increasingly increasingly globalized culture, because of social media, we just kind of assume that we have our finger on the pulse of global culture. And it's not really true, especially since Western aesthetics and Western ideologies kind of dominate social media conversations and and the globalization, the you know the culture of globalization. So it's not an accurate read of reality. I was just reading a couple of weeks ago that um, you know a prominent demographer, a historian, um, and researcher, a PhD, who spends a lot of time studying world religion. Um, published a uh, a report of her research and claimed that uh, the majority of Christians in the world are in Africa, mm. Asia, Latin America, Oceania. Um, the majority of Christians in the world, or the majority of those Christians are in Africa. The majority of those Christians are women, and the median age of those Christians is 19 years old, which huh. means that we tend to think, you know, in the West, oh my gosh, Christ- evangelicalism's dead, and and which, you know, evangelicalism's not a helpful word anymore. It's become entirely political. Right, right. It, it. So I get that, dismiss that. But we think of the Protestant kind of mainstream Protestant expression of church in America is breaking down and dying, and all that's left are you know right wing fundamentalists, and everyone else is deconstructed. But Again, I know that this sounds like I'm really stepping on toes, but statistically speaking, deconstruction is a movement mostly lo- you know, relegated to white, affluent hmm. American millennials, hmm. uh, statistically speaking. It is not happening all over the world the way that it is happening in America, and hmm. the reason is because the average Christian, globally speaking, is not the white, well-off, you know, 20-something podcaster in California. Mm. The average Christian is a teenage girl in Nigeria. And all around the world, the uh, perspective on the scriptures and the church and affection for um, the things that we poo-poo in, you know, the Western (laughs) world, like, ew, church, or the Bible's got weird stuff, you know that kind of thing, um, is just not happening. There's, in in Mm. fact, you know, I've... uh, was reading about um, a pastor from uh, the the West Coast who traveled to, uh, I want to say it was Africa, and was spending time amongst um, Christians there who mm. were meeting in secret. And, uh, and they were wary of him bringing in his, what they, they described as like a, a corrupting um, cynicism from the West. They're like, wow. no, we we just want to be Christians and we want to love the scriptures and we want to follow Jesus. We don't want all the, you know, like poking and prodding. And wow, he was deeply humbled by, you know, like, oh my God, they're trying to like actually keep the real thing going without it being poisoned by the ew, you know, the, the yeah. stuff, which is a, a, an incredible irony because I, I'm stereotyping a bit here, but the quintessential kind of um, stereotypical figurehead of the deconstruction movement is usually someone who's you know left leaning and um, quasi progressive on the not just the socio political spectrum but the kind of theological spectrum as well. And for this archetypical fictional person that I'm you know drafting, 
the idea of things like cultural appropriation and white people telling people of color what they should and should not think are some of the greatest sins in the world. And yet deconstruction depends on those two things to exist at all in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Bible was not written by white people and it was not written by people in positions of power or people mm-hmm. with any kind of wealth or affluence. And yet you have these <laughs> like, you know, white progressive millennials pointing at people uh, in a different culture, um, people of color, mm. people with no power, oppressed people, and saying, no, nah, you're wrong, you don't know anything. Mm. You, you're, you're, you're uneducated, and you, you're oppressive. Mm. <laughs> you're actually oppressing me by the things that you're writing. Um, and saying, you know what, if I do take any of the things that you have to say, I'm going to change them. I'm going to make them what I want them to be. Right. So it becomes this kind of, um, I know these are, again, strong words, but it becomes almost like this colonizing, culturally mm. appropriating thing to deconstruct, which is, again, why I think that just just saying I'm, I'm just out has more integrity than saying like, nah, I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it, even at the expense of these people in other cultures and around the world, because I just know more, you know, I know more than they do. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So with some of the rest of our time, we'd love to go into the topic of suffering. We know that a lot of people deconstruct because of this problem. It's one of like the top two problems besides church abuse that people usually cite statistically as to why they walk away from the faith. They don't understand how God could allow this kind of evil in the world, maybe evil they've experienced, evil they've seen, and still be a good God. Um, so can you speak into that at all? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I in the book I um, categorize what I think are, at least in my experience, the five main, I call them great predators, but the mm. five main issues that tend to derail faith in the deconstruction conversation and the problem of evil is one of them hmm. for me. And uh, and maybe the lion's share of conversations I've had with people who, who are deconstructing, it's, it's pain and suffering. And <clears throat> I know that I've been really, you know, uh, snarky and volatile about the stuff that I've said. And But I actually get, again, I'm coming from the place of the person who has done these things. I was just critiquing myself. You know, I was the person who was like, oh, I don't know if this stuff in the Bible is, I think maybe I know better. So hmm. I'm... If I sound critical, it, it is, you know, from, from experience of being the person that I am criticizing. Well, the problem of evil is different. I think that, you know, we, we tend to, as people, quantify levels of pain and assign certain levels of validity to pain. Like, oh, well, if you, this happens to you, then you're, you're right to be hurting. But if this happens to you, get over it. You're, you're okay. Or we do the thing, you know, it's a common <laughs> social media war tactic to be like, oh, really for so first world this other thing is happening therefore your pain has been invalidated because there's more pain in the world hmm. which becomes like a pain measuring contest <laughs> um but i think you know that uh pain is pain and I'm, I'm not saying that you know some some pain is not more significant than other pain i just mean that we all hurt Our pain is universal to the human experience and suffering is as well so i get it and you know i'm a hmm. person who's been like weirdly drawn to pain, not like in a, you know, sadomasochistic kind of way, but like, uh, um, I, I'm fascinated by it. I have experienced a lot of pain in my own life emotionally and psychologically. And, um, even though it took me 30 years to actually have something actually tragic happen to me, most of my life was pretty comfortable and, but pain was always something that fascinated me or was on my mind. Um, 
And that was one of the main issues that uh, poised itself to derail my faith personally. For me, the idea that um, God is responsible for pain or God engineers pain to teach us special lessons uh, is, is something un- untenable. Hmm. Um, for me, the idea that God has created a, a world that's free, and this is not a new or novel concept, this is the most ancient perspective from you know the uh, early church, the idea that God has uh, uh, created a universe that's free, that has autonomy, and, and that he has done so, you know, as C.S. Lewis would put it, like, in the name of love, for, mm-hmm. for love to exist, freedom has to exist, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that within that, um, you know, created order that God engineered, beings and there are spiritual beings again not a new concept as ancient as the you know and and earlier than the jesus movement itself Hmm. Uh, and that there's autonomy in both both realms so and that they overlap so that there's a physical world and a spiritual world they're distinct realities but they overlap and that god has um, created creatures things in both realms that um, have freedom and autonomy and then, to me, the connection almost makes itself. When, when you have people, and our experience confirms this, when you have people, and those people have autonomy, and they have the choice between what's best for everyone and creation and the environment and the animal, you know, what's best for the whole picture, or what I want, even if it's at the expense of other people and creation and everything else, Eventually, they will choose the latter. Like, mm. eventually, they, meaning we, me, we will choose the latter. You know, and I always argue for, for moral, for evidence of this, see all of human history, you know, <laughs> um, or your own life. Just look at mm. your own narrow experience. And when we choose that which is at the expense of others for the sake of ourselves, it, you know, you don't have to be a theologian to deduce that those decisions have consequences and those consequences have consequences. I mean, now right down at a mathematical level, we have chaos, which um, confirms that like, you know, uh, incidents don't happen in a vacuum. Mm. A a seemingly simple incident has drastic consequences on a a massive scale for a sufficiently complex system. And the universe is a sufficiently complex system. So I think that um, there's it, it, virtually sidesteps the problem of evil to grant autonomy to human beings, to spiritual beings in particular, Mm. um, which for me resolves the issue of like um, the uh, natural evil, you know, hurricanes and tsunamis and and that kind of thing. The the fact that the world is just broken. It was created good, but it's broken Mm. down. And again, not huge theological gymnastics to get there. I'm just um, following the level story of the the scriptures and um Mm. and the story of you know the history of the church and how they've worked that out so that doesn't resolve pain but it does uh get god out of the hot seat for Mm. me you know to consistently follow or to follow jesus that was a roadblock the idea that uh, okay well if if god somehow ordains or determines or writes out, you know, child abuse or the, you know, or rape or mm-hmm. um, war, genocides of things, then I honestly don't really blame people for deconstructing their faith. Mm. You know, 
one anecdote that I mentioned in the book is that a friend of mine um, was asked to host a group of uh, people who it, it it ostensibly it was to be for people who um, aren't Christians. They come in. It's mm. like it's a whole thing. It's a guided curriculum. They sit to based conversations and um, and somehow out of this really unconventional format. People People come to faith in Jesus. It's hosted by churches. So he was asked to be the first host for the first group. Um, it's called Alpha that was meeting. And uh, in that first group, he realized that, you know, there were a dozen people there. None of them were, um, you know, like completely new to the idea of church Christianity, the Bible. They, In fact, they were all former Christians, and they had all deconstructed their faith because of the problem of evil. And every single one of them, because they were told at some point that, God ordains and structures and predetermines suffering and pain and evil for the for the big picture. You know, it's really important to him that that's just the best way to do it. Um, and there are there are Christians, legitimate Christians, who believe that. But he ended up saying to this group of people, like, you know, you don't have to believe that to be a Christian, right? <laughs> like, there's, in fact, in fact, arguably, most Christians in the world don't don't believe that. And there was like, oh my God, I had no idea. That's just what I was handed. Oh. And it was handed to me as the only perspective rather than this is our theological position, but there are others yeah. <laughs> um, with countryside of orthodoxy. So I think that, uh, you know, sometimes the way I put it in the book is that people are mad at a cow for not being a dolphin. It's mm. fine if you have an issue with uh, the problem of evil. We all do. It's a problem. It's in mm. the name. Yep. But to be, be be bent out of shape at, you know, oh, God, he causes this suffering, and God, he does, you know, um, to me is like uh, taking issue with something that most Christians don't even believe in the first mm. place. Um, mm. are Arguably, most Christians, it, certainly most are, are Christians don't believe in the first place, and we have other viable positions um, that present a different uh, worldview or a different mm. resolution for the problem of evil. Hmm. Wow. When it comes to conversations like that, where you present someone with like, well, not every Christian believes this. I know a lot of people we talk to, and even myself, we love control so much. We want to be certain, like this is how it is. Like the Bible says this. I don't like that there's other streams. Like that's even a critique that a lot of non-Christians have for Christians. Like you have so many denominations. Like how can you believe all the same thing and stuff like that? We don't obviously, but we believe on, we agree on the core tenets, right? Um, so a lot of people want that certainty and deconstruct or say that they can't believe in God or they can't believe in Christianity because there isn't this certainty. They have an amount of evidence that's been presented to them, but for them, it's not enough to be 100% certain. Have you seen that affect this deconstruction movement at all? I have, yeah. I think that the desire for certainty, and I don't know this to be true. You'd have to ask like a sociologist, but it, it seems to me that it's, uniquely present in uh, our generation. We have just extreme anxiety about mm. things like waiting. Um, <laughs> extreme anxiety. I mean, look at the way that the uh, pandemic unraveled the sanity of the world mm. because no one could just say what was actually going on. No one could say, okay, look, we understand this thing completely. We know what it does and doesn't do. Um, no one could say, here's when life will go back to normal. Hmm. No one could say, oh, okay, here's why we were disagreeing and we resolved those disagreements. Instead, hmm. you had just like abject chaos where yeah. mm -hmm. um, understandably, science was rushing to catch up with something that was new and strange. And so 
again, understandably, science was um, uh, undertaking the often clumsy process of learning and discovering and saying like, oh, you know what? Actually, we've learned this now. So that last thing w- wasn't totally right. Hmm. And people were like, oh, my God, we can't believe any, you know, the idea <laughs> that we can't believe anything anymore. They told us that we had to spray surfaces, but now we don't have to spray surfaces. Everything's <laughs> a lie. You know, the, um, and then the idea that like uh, people were just had to be in a position to say, when will things go back to normal? I just don't know. You know, the people in positions of power were like, we just don't know. And I witnessed, you know, like uh, people, my peers, people in my church, my friends, they were just coming unglued by this. So why can't we know? Because we've been trained to um, maintain certain expectations and then have those expectations fulfilled. Mm -hmm. You order the thing on Amazon, it comes in two days. That's Amazon Prime. And now people, you know, and I'm one of them, that are used to this kind of format, this exchange, are like, it's been two days. Where the heck is the thing? What's going on? Now I'm mad. Should I contact someone? Should I be (laughs) outraged? We've completely forgotten the whole please allow six to eight weeks for delivery format of the world. And the problem with the scriptures is that they were written into a world where patience was not only uh, necessary, but it was presupposed. Like, imagine the way that the New Testament was transmitted, where one dude writes one letter Mm -hmm. and then rolls it up and hands it to one dude, and he goes, you know, travels for days and days and days to another church, opens it and reads it, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then somebody (laughs) else has to now become responsible for the contents of that letter and carry it Mm -hmm. to a different place, and during that process, churches still have communication with one another, albeit very slow. Mm. So they're saying, oh, my God, wait till you see this thing that Paul sent to the church in Corinthians. It's even crazier than the last letter he sent. And mm. you would just have to say, I guess we'll get it in some months if he's not dead. Yeah. You know, yeah. at some, we have to trust God that God will get us that letter somehow. <laughs> so we don't we now uh, you know even the way that we assume historicity works itself out is so different mm. from the ancient world we we think of like re- reliable history in severely modern terms mm. and in the ancient world you know like th- which thrived on the oral tradition which just means this girl comes to us from her town and says i've been entrusted with the doctrine from paul here's mm. what it is you know and they're like thanks phoebe and then she's like, all right, well, I'm going to the next place. And they, you know, this is reliable history. They just mm. told me a story about what Jesus did. Um, mm. So I think that the the certainty sickness is absolutely, uh, you know, fundamental to the deconstruction phenomenon. But the issue is, is that you will not get certainty anywhere you go. Yeah. That you, we, we have the illusion of certainty. Yeah. We have Amazon Prime certainty, which we also learned doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. So if what you're after is certainty and you're going to bail on Christianity because you can't get it there or because it's not as modernly cohesive as you would like it to be, you don't like the idea of different streams and expressions mm-hmm. and theological disagreement mm-hmm. that can seem really significant from one camp to another. Yeah. Go try a different worldview, and you will be disappointed by the results. Yeah. You know, like the the same is true of not just every world religion, but the same is true of just you know philosophical points of view about existence. Hmm. So, hmm. I think yeah. that at some point we have to resolve ourselves to a certain amount of mystery in the world. Yeah. That doesn't mean that there are not like important core things we can know about God and ourselves. We can't know everything, and that's just the nature of being human. Yeah, I think it's honestly one of the the biggest 
sins of like our enlightenment era is playing God. And we, we feel like we should know everything. It should be certain, hard-lined. And no one wants to make terms or make friends with our like obvious subjectiveness. Like we just like put it out of our minds. We're like, no, I'm not gonna think this. Like I can know everything because there's so much information. And like it's gonna be it's gonna be what it is. And we're we have these theological discussions because we think we can actually get to the bottom of it. Because we we genuinely believe in objective truth. That's something mm-hmm. that's good that we should believe yes. in. Yes. Um, and like it's the the core tenant of what we like the foundation of our our whole religion and worldview. Mm-hmm. But we go from there to saying that everything I believe needs to be the objective truth, and I can find it. Where we should be able to have, say we can have faith that this is what we think is is legit and is the objective truth, but have the perspective to say I'm still a subject like being that can't absolutely know everything, and I can have have an amount of confidence in this, like ninety percent, eighty percent, seventy percent, and then put my faith in it and continue to walk that out as my worldview. And it honestly it's caused me, it's caused a lot of people I know like a lot of heartache because we can't have a hundred percent certainty that, that this is like the truth of of the matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've been thinking about this in the last few days about being a disciple of Christ. And one of the probably the best things we can do is realize that we don't have control. Mm. And I think giving up the illusion of control as you're discipling under Jesus is like adds a lot of more, a lot of peace to your life, you know. And it's like as I became older, I become more respectful of the reform theology and the idea Mm. of sovereignty. Um, Whereas I don't go all the way there but i'm just like yeah that yeah just having knowing god's in control and i'm his Mm. disciple and he's teaching me and he's directing me and things happen i might not understand why but i can just release control Mm. i I have found relieves a lot of anxiety Mm. because then i'm not trying to assert my will over my life i'm subject to whatever god brings to me and he has there's obviously responsibility to be taken in some degree yeah um but i think that that helps so many people like i think I, i i would assume a good amount of Christians probably handled COVID a lot better than a lot of non-Christians because there's that sense of, hey, like, I don't understand, but God does, and I'm just releasing. And that brings some peace mm-hmm. that can help us, like, go through the storm. It's part of fear of the Lord, too, right? Like, when you mm-hmm. surrender and surrender to your subjectiveness and say, like, Lord, like, you obviously know what is right and I don't. I'm going to continue to trust in you even though I don't know mm-hmm. all of the tenets of my theology are true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. I mean, you, you guys are... Essentially describing self-denial, which is, you know, the prerequisite to following yeah. Jesus, not not like the black belt level uh, <laughs> advancement in apprenticeship, but the prerequisite yeah. is to surrender autonomy mm. over to a master and, you know, assume the position of the student. Yeah. You're the master, you're in charge, I'm the student, I am sub- subject to your authority. Mm which I think grates against the modern sensibility in, in a way that yeah. can scarcely be overstated. And yet, I agree. I think that the surrender of autonomy is one of the most comforting, freeing, mm. like uh, ca- counterintuitively freeing yeah. things that I've experienced in discipleship to Jesus. You know, think about the way that um, psychologists argue that Children who receive consistent loving, obviously consistent loving discipline, are uh, statistically more confident. Hmm. They're the children who, um, you know, move about and greet. And obviously, kids have different personalities, but statistically yeah. speaking, are more confident, confident in group settings, more sure of themselves. And the psychological argument is that 
they have grown to understand that their parents are in control of the scariness of the world and they're not. So when something, when they violate what their parents wishes, there will be some kind of correction that takes place, which subconsciously confirms in a child's mind, like, oh, I'm not in control. I'm not the boss. Mm. They're mm-hmm. the boss. And then that allows me to hand over to them a certain amount of trust that, like, they don't even let me do what I want to do. So they're going to take care of mm. me. They have, they have my best interest in mind. And then they become confident. Well, um, I think that that is true of disciples and a master. When you're an apprentice, I, I want to have a master who knows what the heck they're talking about, and I want to surrender my apprenticeship over to them. You know, when, I, when I've sat down in my life to learn from you know, a mentor, I did not go, yeah, but I've got a lot of thoughts, and I want to tell you what I think. It's like I came and would actually say out loud, and this is a thing that I've actually done, sat with years under a mentor to learn a, a ter- certain trade, mm. and say like, you tell me how to do it. I, I defer to you. I don't want I don't want to make it. If I could do it myself, I wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So you tell me what to do, and I will do what you tell me. And then they trust me to grow and learn and you know have more freedom and more um, confidence in, in what I have learned. Mm. Um, and that's the beauty of apprenticeship. The idea of being like walking side by side rather than behind Jesus as master and teacher and Lord is, una- is entirely unappealing to me. I can just do what I want if I want to do what I want. Yeah. I would rather surrender autonomy to Jesus, even though I know that that's you know, blasphemous to the modern sensibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as we come to the end of the, our time here, we have started to ask all of our guests this question as a means to help our listeners uh, navigate all the questions of the Christian faith yeah. that they might come across. So we want to ask you, what do you think, and maybe we've talked to, uh, already about it with the suffering thing, but yeah. what was something or the one thing that comes to mind when you think of like the hardest question you faced mm. in your Christian journey and how did you overcome that to still follow Jesus? Um, suffering was a huge thing, but I w- to give you an, uh, you know, a variant answer and maybe something that was equally so was overcoming or accepting the crappiness of people. Hmm. Um, I am a uh, very cynical person by nature, very pessimistic by nature, not a good thing, mm. and um, have been throughout my life, hopefully I'm maturing and growing all the time, but have been deeply kind of self-absorbed mm. and narcissistic, and so I would kind of take on this perspective that, oh, this has failed me, so screw this, mm. um, whether, be it an institution or an individual or a group of people, an idea um, if I could uh, carve out some kind of I, you know, perspective for myself that I knew better, then screw this. I know better. And or if something failed me, you know, by um, a violation of the terms of what I assume are mm. friendship or uh, you know authority or you know, parents, pastors, teachers, that kind of thing. Well then, forget you. I don't. I don't care about what you have to say. And you know, deeply re- rebellious by nature. Again, not always a good thing. In fact, most most of the time, not a good thing. Occasionally a good thing in the right context. So uh, I spent years and years desperately convincing myself that I could carry out my um, Christianity privately, you know, as something that would transpire between me and God because I was so special and so unique and so smart and I knew so much better than, you know, the people at church that were getting it 
wrong, that I was just going to do my own thing. I was going to do it my way. And at that point, you know, like I still had a lot of the core attributes of um, Christian Christianness. You know, I wouldn't even call it Christianity, but like I still read my Bible and prayed, and I wasn't, you know, completely off the deep end in that sense. But I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't figure out church, man. The idea of community and doing it with other people. Uh, my church had been such a terrible experience, and I was, you know, I wouldn't have admitted it, but I was embittered and really angry mm. about it. I would say that I was justifiably, um, you know, righteous anger if if I had any. Or maybe I'd say, oh, I'm not angry. I don't even care. Mm. I just don't want to do it anymore, which was a lie. Um, but at some point, again, if you go on that journey from less mature to mature, ideally, as you transform faith and you go on the process of spiritual formation, you realize that even if you just continue to read the Bible, not even really study it, but just on a surface level, you realize that Christianity is always and only carried out in the context of community, yeah. meaning with other disciples of Jesus, where there's some level of accountability and vulnerability. I mean, the New Testament just won't make any sense otherwise. Yeah. It's like written exclusively to groups of people, or when it is, you know, a letter to an individual, it's in the context of that person's life in the community of God's people. You know, Paul Paul just presupposes that he's talking to groups, not individuals, and that they're going to have group issues, not individual issues. So that was really, that required a tremendous amount of pride swallowing and mm. humility and mm. eventually back into a church building and and saying, you know what, maybe I don't know everything and maybe these people won't be the kind of people that I prefer and maybe they won't like the same things I like and maybe they won't think I'm so smart and so special, but we're just going to show up and we're really going to try and really participate and then over the course of the following years watched my faith transform in more significant ways than it ever had when I was trying to do the personal wow. pan spirituality. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing about a death to deconstruction guys. Make sure to get that. Uh, when does it drop? It's in a few weeks, right? By this time it comes out, it should be already out, but November 15th, November 15th. Yeah. So by the time this episode episodes release, will be within a few days of its yeah. release. So, Go check it out, guys. Death to Deconstruction. You can also find more of Josh Porter's sermons at Van City. If you look mm -hmm. up Van City Church on any podcast or website, you'll find it. And he's got a lot of great sermons there. Um, Josh, thank you so much for coming on. And you guys know where to find us. If you don't, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. TYDC. We have actually one interaction on Facebook ever. We found yeah. out the other week. We've never used <laughs> we Facebook. We forgot we were on there. Someone liked one of our <laughs> posts that was there. I'm like, oh, all right. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys for coming back, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.